Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about Singaporean food. If you'd like to see more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Ethel Hoon is a Singaporean chef who runs the kitchen of restaurant Clessolet with her husband. As the ex-sous-chef at Favikan, she helmed Hoon's Chinese, a Singaporean Chinese pop-up that retains the restaurant's focus on local ingredients. She sees the pop-up as a means to celebrate produce that would otherwise go to waste in a fine dining restaurant. Hey Ethel, it's so lovely to speak with you. Maybe you can take me back to your childhood. What exactly inspired you to become the chef and the cook that you are today? The idea of like food in my family is always a very big thing. Ever since I can remember, my maternal grandma would always cook uh, Sunday lunches from the entire family and that would mean like six of her kids and that would mean 20 cousins. She would go grocery shopping two days before, spend the entire Saturday cooking and then Sunday we would all gather for lunch and it would be like a, a three, four hour affair. We would come after church and then stay until like four or five. The cousins would eat and play and, and everyone kind of gathered around food. A lot of dishes that she cooked were very simple but every every year there would be like a little bit of like you know, innovation in her way you know she would add like fried ikan bilis to uh, a stir fried vegetable or she would no longer fry the ikan bilis she would like bake them in the oven and she's not a professional chef but she cooked with like a lot of like understanding of like how people should be nourished and how kind of food brings people together and so even when she was she's still alive now but she stopped cooking because she's she's quite sick but even up until like five six years ago i think she was struggling and she um she was struggling with her health and a lot of different issues but she was very very insistent on still cooking sunday lunches you know and that's been like a 30-year tradition in my life for my dad he was a sole breadwinner in the family and he would always make it a point to be home for dinners on fridays uh, so we used to call it friday family dinners and that used to be something that we used to do at home and then when we were a little bit older he would always um, ask where we would like to go to eat and that could be anything from like a hawker center to i know we used to go to spaghettis a lot it's this like american chain yeah. that used to do like italian food and the idea of like food i, I always associate it with like gatherings and people and like being able to bring people together I think unconsciously that association is what brought me to like kind of love food in a way was cooking professionally something that you had always contemplated yeah for sure I think I can't remember the date but I remember my parents always telling me that like when they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up I always said a chef and I think it was this combination of like disbelief from them and like people were like you can't cook as a profession, you know, that, you, that kind of like um, pushed back from them. And I was also very stubborn as a kid. So I was like, of course I'm going to cook, you know, you can't tell me what to do. So I, no, it's, a, it's a strange thing, but I think that's how I, that's really how I ended up pursuing it. I think it was this combination for like my love for it and like my love for eating. And then people saying that you, I couldn't do it. A lot of people, they go into cooking as a profession, thinking that it's like 90% cooking. But in reality, cooking is like such a small portion of the job. I mean, you know, it's also yeah. up, organizing things. So did you feel like it fit your expectations? I didn't have any like romantic ideas of the kitchen, to be honest. 
Um, I knew it was always going to be very hard work, um, long hours. When people are, are off their work, you're working, you work holidays, you work weekends. When I was starting out, I really enjoyed the physicality of the kitchen. You know, I've always been in like in sports and, and, and I liked like being on my feet a lot. So I, I did enjoy like the physical work. And I mean, of course, I'm not old, but like as you get older, you kind of, you know, you kind of recognize it takes a toll on your body. But I, I, I admit like starting out, I really loved the long hours, the standing in the kitchen, all of like all of the aspects that like make up the kitchen that's not just cooking. I really loved it. What led you to Favican to work for Magnus Nelson? When I was thinking of pursuing cooking as like professionally, I knew I wanted to do French cuisine. Like somehow that to me was like the epitome of, of cuisine or fine dining. You know, you had to learn all these like techniques. And I, so I spent my first year working at Les Amis in Singapore with Chef Sebastian. And it was a really good experience in Singapore. Like I learned so much in my one year there. Um, but I, there is like this bit of a disconnect. And I think the food systems in Singapore are just different because of how it is. You know, you are a small island country. You, you import everything. You know, everything comes to you packed super nicely in these little like boxes or cases. And the only connection you have with it is through a, a, a middleman. My university was in a very small town in upstate New York. It was like a lot of farm country. So you had these very di- direct connections with where you're getting your food from. And in Singapore, that was what I was really, I, I don't think I could have articulated it then. I was just a bit like, this feels a bit weird. And now I realize that that probably was what it was. And so I said, I wanted to finish up the year at Les Amis and then try and go over this and, and experience something else. I actually hadn't heard of Fat Vegan until a friend of mine gave me uh, the cookbook for my birthday. And I flipped through it. It was such a unique expression of, of food and a way of sourcing and a way of living or being dependent on like on food. And so I applied for a stage there, not thinking I would get it. I managed to write at the right time when they were looking for a stage at a certain period. And, and so I went. And I think it's hard to read a cookbook and really say like, I understand what this restaurant is about completely in its entirety. The, the really special thing about being up there was this like really, really direct connection with what you were, um, what you were cooking. I've seen a dish from a chef's table of this uh, quail egg that was dipped in ash. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, it's so interesting because, you know, he mentioned the alkalinity of the, the, the ash actually cures the egg. And yeah. It reminded me a lot of uh, century egg. And I was just thinking, you know, the more you learn about different cuisines in the world, the more you realize um, how much similarities and how many parallels actually run through these cultures and cuisines. So how was that like for you um, as a Singaporean working at Favikan? Like, how did that colour your perspective on local food? I completely agree with you. And I also saw that, that dish um, in person. I was like, this is, looks like century egg, you know? Like the idea is the same. You're trying to change uh, a product by putting ash or an alkaline substance around it. Um, and that's, something that they do in, in, in Iceland. I just thought it was such a weird parallel. You know, you have some, a country that is in such a different area of the world, completely different ingredients, cuisine, but still have the same kind of similar techniques that they use for different purposes. It's really interesting you're talking about it because I just read a book. I just read Eat a Peach by David Chang. Oh, it's like mem- his, his memoir that he doesn't want to call memoir. But he, he says that deliciousness has no borders. You know, yeah. people will find a way to make things good. And I think a lot of these techniques, are, if, you, if you kind of distill them down, they are a handful of, of base techniques. 
mm. that you use um, fermenting uh, or canning or things that you know things that they used to use to preserve ingredients and and to enhance flavor are all based on very uh, similar techniques but a lot of what i saw was i was like oh these are also things that i have in a similar way at home you know like they used to they were making a dish of uh, sprat they're like these small fishes that they would cure in a lot of spices and um and salt and the the juice that came out of it which was like the brine that came from the from from curing this fish was like fish sauce almost um, when I was there, they were making a mushroom soy, for example. You think you're in a completely different area, completely different country with, with no history of, of making soy sauces. I remember a while ago, I was making chicken rice and you know how um, to make it super silky, you actually plunge the chicken in like sub 90 degrees Celsius water to kind of like let the chicken cook in the residual heat so it never ever comes yeah. down, right? And like, I was just thinking it's so similar to sous vide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. fascinating because sous vide is like a, you know, I think it's considered a Western technique. And I think two people from different parts of the globe came to the same conclusion. And I mean, like, you know, in this current climate of um, cancel culture and people lambasting people <laughs> for, for fusing different cuisines and cultures together, I think, to, to be honest, I feel a bit sad. Fusion led to so many creative dishes, not just uh, in Singapore, but worldwide, you know? Yeah. The idea of fusion is something that we all use, like as chefs or as someone that loves food or enjoys eating food. Like, we are no longer in a culture where you live in a bubble. You have a reference from somewhere. You cook with a reference from different places, either where you've worked, things you've seen on like Instagram or what you've read. You know, you pull all of these references unconsciously or consciously and that in itself is fusion you know nobody cooks with one singular mindset anymore i would love to know more about your pop-up it's called hoon's chinese is it traditional chinese food or what, what is it <laughs> i think it has evolved i think over the past like since it started until now and i was in sweden and for a summer um magnus kind of uh, pushed me to do this pop-up. He had a space that was running in the village that we all lived. I, at that point, had like maybe no, zero to no interest in cooking anything from my heritage or like Chinese. And I was a bit hesitant. I was like, I really have no clue except for what I've eaten. You know, I know flavors, I know dishes, but I have no idea how they're made. I have no idea of context. And I felt a bit like a... Uh, a fraud you know <laughs> like <laughs> it's like I always wanted to pursue like European fine dining uh, cuisine and and I thought it's a bit ironic that I had someone else like a third party who's who has no connection to where I came from kind of pushed me to do something because he thought it was interesting we called it Hoon Chinese because I think Magnus really wanted to have mapo tofu on the menu <laughs> Yeah. I think that was the base idea you know it's like I really like these few dishes that are Chinese and you are the closest thing to, not you're not from mainland China, but you are Chinese, you know? You, sh you should have more, more understanding than most of the people there. We used to do like a version of a Peking duck on the menu, the dumplings, we did a few things that I immediately associated with Chinese cuisine. Now it has evolved, I think, into like almost Hoon Singaporean, more than Hoon's Chinese. My husband and I, Jakob and I, when we moved, we decided to like kind of restart the pop-up in, in the cities that we were in. So we did like two in Berlin. Um, we've done a couple now that we are here in, in, in Austria. I've also done one in Singapore. 
but yeah, the always the, the, the frame of reference of food that comes to mind, it's always Singaporean first. Mm. Instinctively, it's not because I, I want it to only be Singaporean. It's just that I have, I, this is what I've eaten growing up, you know, these are flavors that I love. So um, what some dishes that you loved when you were growing up? One of my favorite dishes is uh, kway chap. Oh, I love kway chap. Exactly. <laughs> but... You know now when you go to hawkers <laughs> in Singapore, they only have like the braised pork belly and the tau pork. They don't do offal anymore. It's so sad. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I also think so. I like that's all I want. I only want the intestines or the stomach. <laughs> you know, that's like it's all about the texture. Yes, totally. Like I love the ears and I love yeah. the, the stomach. I feel that it takes proper technique to cook it well because when yeah. I was living in Melbourne City. There was this Chinese restaurant that was trying to do something similar like kuei chap. But, you know, I think they cooked the, they braised the innards far too long. So everything was the same texture. Everything was just tender. Yeah. I think we value like kogan yeah. so much. <laughs> yes. So much. You know, like I love the texture of like something being a bit chewy or something like cartilage I love. Yeah. I find it very interesting that you talked about mapo tofu as something that... Um, Magnus really liked because when I was living in Melbourne all my colleagues ever talked about was mapo tofu and I was like I've never seen <laughs> that as a Chinese in Singapore ever yeah know? yeah yeah it's true I also yeah I think I think that's the thing like the frame of reference is it's it's the same if I were to say I love this dish in Austria I probably know like one or like I know 10 out of 500 dishes you know so my frame of reference is much smaller yes. and I think it's the same for westerners looking to Asian cuisine or like Chinese cuisine and saying like what dishes do I like that I know and mm. mapo tofu happens to be one of the most like infamous or famous ones yeah um so the frame of reference is very very small and it was it was I had a very small frame of reference for Chinese cuisine also when I was when I started doing hoons yeah. You know, I, I, I thought about dishes that I liked eating that were Chinese. Um, and, and I could pay, probably could name you like 15. When I first started doing the menu at Hoon's, I, was, I felt stuck, you know, to come up with like 10 dishes that I liked that I thought I could execute well, given the ingredients, given, um, given these restrictions of like not having certain equipment, what could I do well? And it was, I struggled very, very hard. Yeah. And you talked about how you were like, embarrassed at how little um, you knew about Singaporean slash Chinese food when um, Magnus asked you to do this pop-up. I actually had a similar experience because when I moved here and I started work um, at a restaurant, yeah. my dad was like, can you cook something from back home? And <laughs> the thing is, he, he, asked for, he asked for chicken rice. And I was like, oh, you know about chicken rice? And he said, yeah, I cook it every week for my son. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> so embarrassed because as a Singaporean, I guess you never really, you know, there wasn't much of a need to cook hawker food at home because you you can't ever make a better chicken rice than the master who has been making yeah. it your whole life, right? So why even bother? But yeah, when, yeah. when my chef asked me to make chicken rice, I was like, oh shit, you know, like, <laughs> I don't want to admit I've never made chicken rice in my life. <laughs> It's like your national dish. You don't know how I to know. make it. 
Yeah, so I think, like it was a case of like fake it till you make it. So I did like tons of research <laughs> and you know, and they loved it. I have the exact same experience. Like all stagiaires cook uh, the weekend before they leave, they do a, a staff meal at, at the restaurant. There's kind of no budget, you know, you just say what you need and, and we'll get it. Uh, everyone has beers and wines and it's like a really nice like staff meal where you get to introduce, like you get to talk about yourself and represent what you, where you come from through your food. As a stagiaire, you do a, a lot of like menial jobs. You don't really get to showcase your, 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 your cooking or your skills or what you actually love, like what you're actually there for. Yeah. And so that like that one lunch is like a culmination of it all. And I, I wasn't pressured to doing something from home, but it's, there's an expectation that you should. <laughs> you know like nobody says like the, the, the idea is just like hey you you cook a staff meal it could but the expectation is that you cook something that represents you can you imagine if you <laughs> and chips or something <laughs> yeah they're like where where this coming from you know it's like yeah there's something i cooked professionally <laughs> for, for a year so i know this is the best recipe um no but i then i made i made a chili crab it came because we had we were using crab in the restaurant a Norwegian king crab and we would use the legs only and so we wouldn't use like the claws or like the knuckle on the shoulder mm. and these are all really like meaty parts and I really wanted to cook crab so I said okay I'll try my hand on it with chili crab but it took me like days of research I had like no reference point for like what was actually in the sauce except for I know eggs at the end you know like a <laughs> egg drop soup but that was all I knew I was like I had no idea what made it red or like what was in the base of the chili sauce and so um yeah it, it took i think it's exactly like what you said there's always there's never you never question and there's this culture of like street food that that makes it so that you don't have to cook at home mm. and so yeah i was taking for granted i was like yeah i have it i can get it anytime i want why why would i ever need to know what's actually in the dish or what what why would i ever need to know why how it's cooked and then it started being like a really interesting journey of like exploring all these different techniques that they use in Asian cuisines uh, that were so different from what they were doing in the West. Mm. And it really like opened my eyes to how special, like how special these things are. Yeah. So what, what were some of these techniques that you learned from Asian cooking that are so different from Western cooking or, or your experience at restaurants? I think the first thing that kind of jumped to mind was the use of a wok. Mm. I... I'm not skilled at wok. I know the theory of how it works and I, I used it while I was at Hoon's, but it was like, a, uh, it's not like in those like Cantonese or Chinese restaurants that you see where you really have a, a really hot flame that needs to be controlled and, or stoked in a way. But this idea of like really fast, quick cooking and the idea of like introducing wok hay by how you add ingredients, how you, how you oil the pan and... I think that's something that doesn't really exist in Western cuisine. They don't have an equivalent of a wok. I just remember like eating growing up, there were always like these dishes that you would have wok fried. There were meat, like, I don't know, uh, black pepper, deer. I remember they yeah. always had it at Hawkins. Slices of meat that like had just touched the wok were super caramelized, but still like medium to medium rare inside, super juicy. It's like the perfect cooking technique if you think about it, you know? What I also like about the wok is its versatility. You can deep fry, you can dry fry, you can braise. It's like, it's like a one, 
it's one utensil for like a million different techniques. Mm, I totally agree with you. You know, this chef called Gerald Ong. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's like Project Inoki on Instagram. <laughs> so basically, he taught me about the technique of velveting. It produces the <laughs> talking about. Trust me, it'll change your life. Okay. <laughs> I was always wondering, you know, why is it that my stir fries at home never taste like you know, at Zita or like hawker centers or Chinese restaurants. And so what velveting is, is you coat the protein, like slices of meat or seafood in like an alkaline mixture. So egg white and a little bit of, um, of baking soda. And you just add just enough cornstarch to form like a slurry around the protein. And then you add that to oil, but you're not deep frying, you're oil poaching. It's like coffeeing, but and then it creates like a coating. Yeah, so it creates, it solidifies the slurry around the protein and it creates kind of like a barrier that protects the meat from the intense heat of the wok. So you remove uh, it from the oil and then after that, you can start stir frying and it takes seconds. And when I tried it, my mind was blown. I was like, it just changed my Velveting. life. Velveting. <laughs> So people do it for prawns. Like when you um, expose prawns to an alkaline mixture, what is so interesting is that they, they turn crunchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know like how when you eat um, hakao, like the prawns are crunchy? Yeah. Yeah, it's because yeah, yeah. Alkali uh, alkaline um, marinade. But when you apply a, an alkaline marinade to meat, it makes it like super tender. Even if it's a cut like, like scotch, that is not necessarily the most tender cut. You know, it transforms the meat. So, I mean, I totally agree with you about, about how, you know, some of these techniques are like nothing I've ever seen in the Western world. <laughs> like every Chinese New Year, you have this dish of braised pork belly with fat choy, which is... Um, like that hair like seaweed yeah and like braised shiitake mushroom right do, do you know that the pork is actually roast pork so when i made the dish for the first time in my life i was like it's so weird that the chinese actually roast a pork until the skin is crispy only to like and soak then, it. yeah soak yeah. it in water and braise it and i was like oh this is so genius because after roasting the pork the skin actually becomes really porous and it's yeah. so all that it's like a sponge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The same thing with like chicken feet, you know, that they like deep fry at first. There are so many techniques that like I overlooked for such a so like such a long time. For some reason, I like thought lesser of the cuisine. You know, it's I think it's so ironic that that's what happens. Like you have kind of reference. Like you're you're always looking to somewhere else. Like I always wanted to cook French cuisine because I thought it was the epitome. And then I realized that like it's it's all subjective, you know. Like Chinese cuisine is great. Singaporean cuisine is also so interesting. Like I I why did I undervalue it for such a long time? Mm. Yeah, totally. And I, I feel that a lot of cooks, uh, professional cooks or home cooks, they always feel that way. They always put Western food like uh, pasta or risotto on a pedestal. I think it's just like this idea of like the exotic. It's I think it's also how the the kind of media that we've been fed for a long time mm. i mean it it might not be like direct in terms of like this cuisine is better but like you know this idea of like chinese villains in movies or <laughs> you know i think it i think it has a i think it has a place in like kind of undervaluing where you come from yeah thinking that like this other this other is superior yes i know what you mean because you know like now when i live in australia everyone is like oh pam you know like 
where you're living, the produce is amazing. I'm so jealous. You have all this fruit, all these vegetables. And I'm thinking, you know, actually I miss some of the produce in Singapore a lot, you know, like calamansi. Yeah. Like it tastes so different from a regular lemon or lime. Yeah. It's like not a substitute. Yes, there is no substitute for that in a plate of Hokkien Mee, you know. So no matter yeah. no matter how authentic the noodles itself is, it will never taste 100% the same because the lime is different. Or even think yeah. the squid, the kind of squid that we use in Singapore. You know, you have like the really beautiful small squid that have like purple tentacles. But yeah. what you can get here is just calamari that is like really big and... Big know, and fat and meaty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all these like subtle differences, I think. If you really like dig deep to it, like it, there's so many things that are, are unique to how we cook and what we eat and like back in Singapore that it's not so easily replicated. So I understand that reducing food waste and utilizing, you know, um, as much of the produce as possible is really, really important to you. Was there something that rubbed off you when you were working with Magnus Nelson? I think it's something that actually came about looking at like my grandma and my mother's cook actually. Mm. It's something I think that is quite like central to... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. If this is definitely going to be an overgeneralization, but like to Asian cuisine or like to Chinese cooking at least, or like to the women that I grew up with that cooked, being frugal was like key. Mm. You know, you bought something and you didn't waste anything. And it's very jarring to see when you finally go work in a, in a place that uses only prime things. You know, like in a fine dining place, they only use prime cuts and you're like, but what about all the rest of the, of the animal? It's just this weird, like conflict of, of saying, yes, I want to serve the best thing to the customer that pays, but also knowing that like these things are all, these other things that you're not using and not serving are not useless or not, there is a value to it. Um, I think it's very hard when you're working for a chef, um, that has a menu and has a certain way of working to impose your, your values on it. You know, I think you can make things better slowly, but um, the idea of, a, of, of something being prime will always uh, take precedence. Hmm. And so when I started doing, when I started doing Hoons in Sweden, um, one of my main goals was to use all of the offcuts from Fair Beacon. Not all, but like a lot of the offcuts because there were quite a lot of things that, they would call offcuts, but things that are so like are prime to us. So, for example, I made an exo sauce out of all the the seafood that didn't make it on the menu. Um, I dried all the the crab meat that they weren't using, and all the scallops that were like a little bit offsides. And I dried and make it into an exo sauce. And I think what what I'm realizing now, what like my husband and I realize are realizing now with running a restaurant, is that it also requires a lot of time or to have a regular plan for these things. Otherwise, it will go into the compost. Hmm. You know, that's the easiest and most convenient way to do it. It's just like, I have all these like vegetable scraps. I don't have time this week to do anything with it. It goes into the bin. You know, so it's almost something that you need to pre-plan for, hmm. I think, with, with food waste or have a really active, like, um, someone needs to be always thinking about it, I hmm. think. I love that. You know, I love how you talk about being intentional uh, in my household because 
uh, Wex, my husband, he's very big on this whole sustainability thing, especially since, you know, he works kind of like, I wouldn't say farmer, but he works very closely with the produce and he understands where food comes from. So I think there's a very, there's a certain level of reverence and respect for produce that he really instilled in me, even more so than um, maybe cooks and chefs that I work with. Because like what you said, Mm-hmm. Uh, the industry is actually, you know, we are so de- desensitized to waste. I remember how yeah. at, the end, at the end of the night, we used to throw away so much stuff, you know. Yeah. And, um, and things like, you know, sometimes when you break down chickens or protein, you don't really keep, like, say, you don't really have time to render down the fat from beef, for example, you know, or you, do, you might not save the bones for stock because, you know, maybe you don't, meat stock in the restaurant like I love Mm -hmm. what you said about how you know this awareness really came from the women in your life rather than you know some chef because I feel the same like I feel that it's very ingrained in the Singaporean way of cooking to value what is undervalued um yeah remember when I was first starting out as a chef you know, before that, I was like a huge cookbook junkie, and I would like read all these Western cookbooks. And one of the one of my culinary heroes and like people that I found really aspirational was Alice Waters. Um, so she yeah. owns Chez Panisse, and there was this emphasis on being hyper local and sustainable, and and just you know finding the best produce, like the best little strawberries, and like treating them um, like very minimally because it was so good. Yeah. And so the very first restaurant that I really worked at, it was, you know, exactly the same philosophy. And um, so we were getting really, really good, like Wagyu, like Miyazaki A5 or something, and just serving on a plate with salt and pepper. Yeah. I just felt, you know, after a while, I just felt like it didn't sit well with me and like the kind of food that I grew up eating. Um, and as my identity as a Singaporean, because so much of Singaporean cuisine is ba- is built on making the best of what you have, of having that yeah. mindset of like a hawker or a housewife, uh, being really thrifty and knowing how to transform things like lard, like prawn shells, like pop yeah. into something that's greater than the sum of its Bigger than Definitely true. I think I think you're so right when you say that in restaurants, a lot of us are very desensitized to waste. It happens so more often that it's almost become you don't you don't think twice about what you throw. Mm. Um, as long as your station is clean at the end of the day, your work, your mise en place is done. You know, whatever goes in the bin has to go in the bin. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it has to be intentional. I think it definitely has to be something that you. You, you think about and you and you plan for mm, definitely um, so I feel that all these notions of sustainability of um, th- this understanding of place you know what they call terroir right you know like um, um, <laughs> the local produce like you know having this focus on celebrating what's regional um, and being close to nature that whole idea of like foraging and like um, being close to the land, I'm just feeling like it's very, very aspirational, and I'm like certainly like closer to that now than I am in Singapore. Um, but how can we really apply that to the Singaporean context? It's very hard to take these 
principles as they are and apply it to where you are, especially with a place like Singapore, mm. because the, the place is so different. Um, to say that we can go farm to table is something that will never happen on a, on a big enough scale. That, but that's the, that's the nature of where you are in Singapore and, and nothing, nothing's going to change unless Singapore somehow grows 10 yeah. times its size. You know, and so I think there's some principles that you cannot just take ad hoc and and apply, even though they are great principles, but they have a they have a context to why they're great. Like that was actually one of my husband's biggest gripes because you know he works in, in the farming industry and like to see people use the term like farm to table and sustainability like really loosely on menus and in like the marketing copy of restaurants, I think it really frustrated him because like like let's be real i mean which restaurant yeah. is or can completely um sustain itself from the produce in a local farm i i don't know something that i've like asked myself quite a bit in terms of like what if i were to move home and and and, and work in singapore in the industry like what would i yeah how would i apply these like kind of values that i have and how i would like to work and it and how would that apply to Singapore? I, I don't know. I also don't think something like foraging will work on a big scale. I mean, foraging itself doesn't work on a big scale. You know, if you have, all, if you have everyone going to the forest to, to live off the land, it, it doesn't work also. I like the idea of like opening your eyes to what's around you. But I think that's so hard to apply to a place like Singapore because there is not much food production. There is some, but it's, it's, very, it's very little. And if you kind of refocus all your energies and your about sustainability on these very, very small producers or industries, that's also not a very sustainable way of working. Yeah. Like, I think that's, that's kind of very sh- short-term, easy solution. I don't know. I think it starts, with, starts first with, like, educating yourself and about being very conscious about certain decisions you make. Um, for, ex- I, for example, I don't really know how AVA works in Singapore to select producers. I know they have some things about some rules about slaughterhouses that they use. Um, my, my biggest gripe, I guess, is that whenever I'm home, I can't, I feel like I'm always buying something that's industrial. Hmm. When it comes to things like? When it comes to things like meat or when it comes to even even vegetables, I feel it's like the idea of where it comes from is so um, distant. Mm. Um, like, like apples, for example, in a supermarket or a market, um, they sell you this brand of apples, like Fuji apples, for example, or, you know, these beautiful looking like varieties of apples. And my husband comes from Moran and it's a big apple producing area. And in, in an apple producing area, that's not a nice, nice production. You know, it has completely turned the area into a monoculture. Um, it is not farming, like, in a romanticized way. People spray pesticides, they spray fungicides. And then these apples are um, exported and sold to you like the most beautiful product, you know. But there's no relation, there's no idea of where it comes from, how it was grown. Is it good for you? It's probably not good for you. Is it good for the environment? Probably not good for the environment, you know. And so I think there's this big connect disconnect in like looking for certain brands or looking for certain markers that you that consumers think makes for a good product but it's actually not true and I don't think enough people question that I feel that Singapore is not a very good place for questioning because (laughs) 
like, I remember when I was at the wet market once for the book, I was at this vegetable store um, or meat store or something like that. And I think there was this Caucasian lady who was like really concerned about the environment. And she was asking the wet market vendor like, um, where is this from? Is it free range? Is it organic? And the, the seller just looked at her like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Or like, are you in the right place? <laughs> so I think like, even yeah. if, you know, there are people who actually want to live in a way that's more sustainable or more ethical, there are actually very little options. And it feels like the free range or the organic options are always like hyper expensive. Yeah. That's what I, I think that's a problem in most places. Like there is such a big disparity between what is, what is labeled organic and then the rest of it, you know, and, and to be honest, it's, if you're living in this age to be able to afford to pay for all organic things, it's also a privilege, you know, not everybody can afford it. I think the first step that a lot of people need to take when they, is to be more conscious of what they consume. Mm. Um, I think there's a very bad trend now going around about like greenwashing and mm. like like you kind of w- without questioning buy into an idea because it's marketed as a certain way mm. um, be it like I don't know biodegradable plastics for example yeah. um, that people you know it eases your conscience about using plastic mm. but is it actually better than an alternative that is not plastic you know it's probably not and so I think people just need to, to, to start with questioning more. And sustainability, sustainability with food, I think, in Singapore is, is a very different topic than... Um, or solutions to it are very different from what I, would, I, I, I think I'm facing mm. here in Europe or, or for you in Australia. And I think all these are very unique problems because Singapore is such a unique location yeah. and size. Um, but I, I always think it starts with being more conscious and and questioning and educating yourself as a consumer. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that everyone can do like really easily, uh, regardless of where you are, to do a bit more for the environment is to eat more vegetables and less meat. I I definitely agree. But I also think there has been a a very big like demonization of um, meat eating. Mm. which I don't think is always fair. I'm not a supporter at all of like industrial farming, but I've also met a lot of farmers that were, while we're here or in Europe, at least that are, you know, using animals uh, as part of like a larger ecosystem. Yeah. A biodynamic system, right? Exactly. And I think in a case like that, it's part of the ecosystem. You know, you need these animals to graze your land, to give manure, um, and of course, it has a, it's a very fine balance where if you, if you really overdo it, you turn it into a, a cattle farm where you have excess manure and it has to be a balance. I think we've come to the point as a developed society where we're eating like way too much meat and that demand for meat goes to industrial farms. Mm. And that's where I think the problem is. I think the whole like industrial farming is, has put our perspective on like food out of whack like the price of food is not what it should be reducing meat intake is definitely something that i'm working towards and you know trying very hard to do because i feel that 
compared to other things, it is actually one of the easiest but hardest things to do. Yeah, I think it should, it should definitely go back to a point where you value it mm. when you have it. I'm living in the Australian countryside. I'm not living in the city. So, I mean, we have access to all these amazing farms. And I remember going on the website of one of them and looking at the price of the chicken. And it was like, I don't know, like $30 for, for a fully grown chicken. And I was like, yeah. oh God, I've been buying chicken for, I don't know, $8 in Singapore. I just couldn't grapple with the fact that it's so much more expensive. Yeah, I think it's definitely the same thing I experienced. Like when, I, when we moved to Berlin, for example, it was like at a point, we were both working in a bakery. And so it was like the point in our lives where we could have dinners at home. Um, and so we started cooking more and I started to, we started a grocery shop and I was looking at prices of chickens in the supermarket and it was like four euros. And then you would go and buy an organic, organic chicken. And it's like you said, it's like five, six times more than a, reg, a regular chicken at the market. Um, and I think that is the issue. Like the issue isn't the $30 chicken. The issue is the $4 chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Like why is it, why there must be something wrong that you can pay for dollars for a, a, a piece of meat that could feed a whole family you know that is not i don't think that's like development yeah. i think that's like backtracking actually mm. when both of you are off work what kind of food do you cook for yourself <laughs> i will not over romanticize it and say that we eat like um it really depends um my guilty pleasure i have to say is like instant ramen instant ramen yeah <laughs> that's like my ultimate guilty pleasure and it's something that like i think when i'm so exhausted and i after having cooked like two lunch and dinners five days a week plus lunch and dinner for the staff the last thing you want to do when you go home i think it's just clean and cook again mm. yeah um, so that's like number, number one guilty pleasure but then also i think in line with what we we're talking about yeah, and I also eat a lot of vegetables, especially in summer. Mm. Um, I think when we cook at home, it's almost, it's almost zero meat unless it's like offals that we're getting in from uh, farmers or something that we're like truly, truly excited about to try. Yakub's from Italy and I'm Singaporean. So the divide is always that like anything that is like Europe, quote unquote, he cooks at home. Anything that is Asian, quote unquote, I cook. Um, and so like even a super simple dish like tomato or like pasta and um, whatever vegetables we're getting in at the moment like zucchinis we're getting in or Swiss chard we're getting in you know you could make a really delicious dish with vegetables carbs um, some pasta water and like great seasoning and maybe some cheese or what we what he likes to do a lot is like this um, almost like a barigul of vegetables where it's uh different vegetables that you add to a pot at a different time, some white wine, um, a little bit of olive oil, and then herbs. Mm, and yeah. it's such a, like, it's also such a comforting dish to have. And it's, you, you eat it and you don't miss meat. Yeah, those are like and the best kind of meals, I feel. Exactly. Well, you're not feeling like you're being punished, you know, yeah. like, or are you like on a diet, you know, it's not a restrictive in that sense. Yeah. I think that's the best. I, I have this conversation a lot with my, my dad because he really likes to eat meat and like red meat he has this like mindset of, of like i won't eat meat twice a week i will have vegetables and and rice and i'll eat very simply and then on the three days i actually eat meat i eat a lot of it <laughs> you know, it's like i'm making up for the loss for yeah. what i did not eat and i think that's i think the mindset has to change a little bit of like a feeling that you need to have it i think we could definitely live 
on a very very small amount of like animal protein also like I, I think it's part of the propaganda in that time like the marketing that oh you have to drink milk so that your bones will be strong and things like yeah. that. uh or you have to eat meat if not you'll fall sick um, yeah that kind of messaging and so i think for them it's a lot harder to quit meat or to like reduce their intake of meat also for them it means development being able to eat meat on a regular basis is progress yeah it's um social status right i mean it's a yeah. marker yeah so i think it's definitely very intertwined with a lot of concepts like masculinity also yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like eat meat if you're a man. Like man eats meat. Yeah, yeah. And also like in Singapore where, you know, you mentioned how communal every every meal is. I think it's hard for people to eat less meat when me me and my husband were planning our wedding. We we actually contemplated having like vegetarian food, but we knew that like the family would never say yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, food is not just food in Asia. It's like a symbol for so many things, like for generosity, yeah. for for you know social status, for affection towards people. Yeah, yeah, it's so intertwined. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, if I have someone coming over and I really like the person, like I feel almost stingy to like say, okay, I'm just gonna buy <laughs> some vegetables for you. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's true. It is true. I would also have that like kind of pressure in my head if I was having people over. So I have one last question for you. You have so much experience under your belt, um, and so many experiences of cooking abroad in different countries. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, is there one person that you really want to cook for? Like you know, if you could cook one meal for someone. If I cook for someone, I would also want to enjoy a meal with them. You know, it's not just about being in the background, like taste my food and that's it. I think for me, the first people I think of when I think of like who would I want to share a meal with is always my family. Mm. and like my sisters especially we've all lived away from singapore for quite a while since i was 16 i think my sisters and i haven't really lived in the same country together mm. so we're always meeting each other somewhere else or like intermittently for like a week or two at home and we're very 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 close mm. and they they both really enjoy food but i think we've also come to the point in our lives where we really enjoy each other's company a lot I want to cook for them because I want to enjoy a really great meal with them and I never and I rarely happens. Yeah, I love what you're saying because I feel that with a lot of chefs it's always about impressing people rather than really pleasing people. Yeah. You know, ultimately when it comes down to it cooking is all about hospitality, it's all about you yeah. know, like it's a love language, right? I mean in Asia. Yeah. 100%. It's been so lovely chatting with you. I absolutely love <laughs> Taking your brain? No, same here, Pamela. It's really, it was really interesting to talk about the same topic but from different perspectives. Kind of opens my mind a lot. Also. Thanks so much for spending your morning with me. Thank you.